You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we're looking this morning at chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses 23 through 28. And you'll find this on page 923 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 14, verses 23 through 28. This is the inspired word of God. So hear the word of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Well, it was at Lystra that Paul had been dragged out of the city and then stoned and left for dead. And even though they thought he was dead, Christ had kept him alive. In fact, it was as if he brushed himself off and went right back into the city, as you remember. And the recent converts, I believe, must have been overjoyed and greatly encouraged as they saw Paul suffering and then serving. He was a living, breathing illustration of God's gracious preservation. And Paul and Barnabas then preached Christ in Derby with great success. Many disciples, it says, were made, and for the Spirit, it was a tremendous victory. He was attending their ministry. And then the missionaries revisited the churches in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And Luke sums up one of the most critical elements in planting of churches. He says in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and, th- and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So elders were appointed to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, willingly, sacrificially. Faithful men of Christian character and spiritual maturity and godly conduct. And nothing less, I believe, is expected of shepherds to whom Christ's sheep are entrusted. The king establishes a visible authority structure for order and peace and edification in the church. God appoints godly elders as an aid to training disciples. What's interesting is that word translated appoint is literally approved by the show of hands. In other words, men from the congregation were nominated and elected by the congregation. 
And in that early transition period, we know that the apostles were the ones who officially ordained them, but the fact remains that the congregation participated in electing men to serve. They observed them. They watched them. They even imitated them. And scripture and experience both show that sheep without shepherds are vulnerable to so many dangers. A church without elders is vulnerable to all kinds of threats. I want you to think of your own household. If that household is without order or discipline at its very best, it is unhealthy and unproductive. The wise man tells us in Proverbs 5 that the wicked dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he's led astray. So sheep that are left without consistent and faithful oversight will go astray. What's that hymn? Prone to wander. You know it as well as me. So God appoints a plurality of elders in the church to care for the flock. Psalm 100, it is he who made us, we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And isn't it wonderful how he provides for the needs of his flock? Christ calls out of this mass of fallen humanity a people for himself, a people chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son's blood and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, this marvelous people of which we are a remnant. And the great shepherd of the sheep determines that he will not lose a single one. Not one. Every single one is important. So Jesus appoints godly men distinguished for piety, wisdom, and judgment to serve as elders. And there to be a visible human expression of Christ's love for the flock. He knows our frame better than we know ourselves. He knows that we're but dust, that we struggle with sin every day. He knows how weak we are, so he appoints shepherds, under shepherds. And then Luke tells us how Paul and Barnabas left the churches in whom they appointed elders. It says, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. And I believe that the appointment of these elders would be pointless apart from Christ's blessing. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless we're focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we labor in vain. And the only way that mere men could possibly bear any fruit is under the blessing of the Lord Jesus. So they were committed to the sovereign and gracious care of our King. And I want to take this opportunity simply to suggest that we should commit our elders to the Lord in prayer. I hope you pray for them. God equipped them. He gave them as gifts. But they contend with sin just like you and me. And the devil knows, and we've seen it all across the evangelical landscape, the devil knows that the quickest way to destroy a church is to seduce its elders. The Bible says where there is no guidance, a people falls. A church without elders is like a ship amid the rocks without a captain. Everybody on board is in imminent danger. And so God gives these elders for good reason. And the prospect of elders bearing fruit is vastly improved if God's people are praying for them. 
Those appointed to care for souls are themselves plagued by sin, and as the leaders go, so go the people. So remember them in prayer. Bear with their weaknesses. Cover them in love. That's what we're called to do, right? Submit to their leadership because the apostle says they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Who wants to be in a household where the parents are just overburdened with concern and groaning because of disobedient children? So with prayer and fasting, Paul and Barnabas committed them to the Lord. They had faithful elders to shepherd the flock. They had the Spirit of God to guide and protect and bless the flock. And under such conditions, we can expect that any church will thrive and be healthy. Then Luke tells us about the final leg of their missionary journey. They have come full circle. They're back to Antioch from where they had departed and overall, it had been a rather difficult and yet very fruitful journey. As witnesses to Christ, they preached the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and now they were going to the utter parts of the world. And having arrived at Antioch, they gather the church together and they report on the work. And it was natural for them to rehearse for the commissioning church the deeds of Christ. And I can imagine that church in Antioch being eager to learn how they had fared. There was no internet, no texting, no phones. They had to hear it from themselves. And they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And that must have been thrilling to hear about the great things God had done. The conversion of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, the defeat of Elymas the magician, the Sabbath preaching on which the whole city listened to the gospel, the Jewish persecution and the privilege of suffering for Jesus, all the signs and wonders they had performed, and all the sinners that had been converted. And you know something? This practice of rehearsing God's wonderful deeds has a long history. Throughout the Psalms, for example, you'll find instances of believers doing this. Look at Psalm 107. The author reflects on God's deliverances of Israel. And he says more than once, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And whenever we reflect upon God's work, it naturally leads to bursts of praise. As elders, and I can say this, we have the privilege of hearing routinely testimonies of believers and I think I speak for us all when I say that we rejoice in listening to what God has done. A doxology is one of the aims, the joyful effects of this kind of practice. Edward Payson says this, Every being has a right and may justly expect to be treated in a manner suited to his nature, character, office, and works. So despite what our culture says, it would be unsuitable and unjust to treat a human being like an animal. Every being has a right and may justly expect to be treated in a manner suited to his nature. You're not an animal. 
You're a human being. Being made in the image of God, you're more dignified than that. Well, when it comes to God himself, he has a right to be praised, to be admired. As David says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And praise and admiration is the natural response to the glory of the infinite God. And it will never stop in heaven. Those angels never cease to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praise. Paul cheered the hearts and he encouraged the hopes of the Antioch church. And perhaps the most important work that he rehearsed was the opening a door of faith to the Gentiles. And that metaphor of an open door is used frequently in Scripture. Paul says, a wide door of effective work has opened to me. Or in Colossians 4, pray also for us that God may open up to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Opportunities to preach, people to listen, hearts to be changed and lives to be reformed. And that's what Paul and Barnabas experienced on their missionary travels. God had provided many occasions to preach Christ to the Gentiles. And through the ministry of the word, what they were doing was making known the cross of Jesus. People heard about Christ's life and his death. They heard about his burial and his ultimate resurrection. And God also opened up many Gentile hearts to embrace the truth. In Derby alone, they made many disciples. They won souls for the Lord. And isn't this one of the things that's implied when you and I pray, or at least taught to pray, the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come. That the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed that the kingdom of Christ may be advanced, that the gospel be propagated throughout the world, and by that means that God would call all the Jews and bring the fullness of the Gentiles into his kingdom. That's what we're praying when we say, thy kingdom come. We pray that the kingdom would advance and that the gates of hell would not prevail and withstand its advance. And we're praying implicitly that a door of faith be opened to the Gentiles. And the opening of this door of faith has two features, one external and the other internal. Externally, it has to do with the open proclamation of God's word. The door is open. The herald preaches the truth of Jesus and explains the gospel's truth. Here are the terms. And it's a powerful means by which God converts and confirms and sanctifies, all at the same time. Remember when Jesus said to his disciples this, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Sadly, the Jewish leaders had failed to perform their duty, and Jerusalem suffered. By failing, the scribes and Pharisees hindered the salvation of many people. Can you imagine going into eternity with that upon your head? Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, 
and you hindered those who were entering. But you see, every preacher who brings out of his treasure both old and new unlocks the door of the kingdom. And under the new covenant, the offer of salvation is made to all nations upon earth. A door of faith is opened and believing Gentiles are taken into the covenant. So externally, it's the word preached. But then internally, this door of faith has to do with the Spirit's regenerative power. The door is opened insofar as the Lord is pleased to accompany our preaching. This is worthless without him. By that word, the Spirit opens the eyes, he unstops the ears, and he actually enlarges the heart to receive Christ. And he gives the new birth. In giving us new birth, he joins us to the Lord and he works in us repentance and faith. It's not something you have to gin up yourself. He works it in you. And then we have the forgiveness of sins and acceptance with Almighty God and the blessing of eternal life. And nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So when the external word is accompanied by the internal power, the door is open. And Scripture teaches us that only the Spirit of God can open that glorious door of faith. Only Him. The law of God can't do it, even though it's holy and righteous and good. It cannot give entrance to a sinner. It can only condemn him. It can open the unbeliever's heart, but simply harden it against God. The law can't do it. Providence can't do it. Think of God's judgments. Sinners aren't changed by judgments. Think even of his mercies. Sinners simply presume upon his kindness. No, the door of faith cannot be opened apart from the Spirit and the Word of God. And God ordains the preaching of Christ so that the gospel can be spread abroad. And then he pours out his Spirit who opens the heart just like he did for Lydia. So externally the Word is proclaimed, internally the heart is strangely warmed, and the important thing to remember is that God alone opens the door. The handle of this door is on God's side. There's no handle on ours. Have you ever gone to the back of a building? There might even be one at Acme. You go to the back of the building and you see this big metal door and it's flush. There's no handle. You can't get in. And the heart has no handle. You can't open it and neither can I. God is the only one who can turn the internal handle. It's a divine prerogative, and the sovereign spirit sends the word, and he regenerates the soul. He turns the handle and opens the door. Because the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And of course, there Jesus is likening the spirit to the wind, which not one of us can control. He came from heaven upon the disciples like a mighty rushing wind. 
And in that valley of dry bones, Ezekiel prophesied to the spirit to breathe upon the slain. And he is free to regenerate wherever and whenever and on whomever he pleases. And though you and I might think that we control the preaching, the very opposite is true. The Lord determines when and where and to whom the gospel is preached. And if he withdraws the ministry of the word, neither you nor I can do anything about it. Remember what he said through Amos, as Elder Parkin read? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but a hearing of the words of the Lord. So for her transgression, Israel was threatened with that kind of judgment, the withdrawal of the living oracles, the scarcity of good preaching, the lack of bread for the soul, starvation, spiritually speaking. And that's a serious judgment, being deprived of hearing the words of God. It's often inflicted in tandem with giving people over to themselves, Romans 1. And it's a judgment that God is willing to inflict upon anyone who refuses to repent or give thanks. God sends laborers into the field. He equips ministers of the word. He extends the privilege of hearing the word. And he has every right to take it away. Just as he controlled the availability of good preaching in Israel, so he can control it here. And as Paul says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You see, Paul and Barnabas had been sent by God, who'd been opening Gentiles' hearts. And thus, through that ministry, God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. But unless he opens that glorious door, you cannot enter the kingdom. We're so used to having this available. I'm guilty of taking it for granted. This wonderful gathering, this wonderful congregation, I'm guilty of taking it for granted. It may not be here next week. The kingdom can be sealed shut to those who have never heard the gospel. And even if the word is preached somewhere, they cannot enter the kingdom unless they're born of the Spirit. They can't even see the kingdom unless they've been born from above. And in this place, at this time, the gospel is preached and the Spirit is at work. And I, I just wonder how often we stop to think about the magnitude of this privilege. I've never known a day in this country when there's been no ministry. I've never known a day. You can turn the radio on, the TV on, the internet, you can go to church. It's always been here in my lifetime. But there are places in this world where the awful solemnity of that judgment is felt. We've been spared the kind of spiritual famine threatened by Amos, but there are places that have no churches, no pulpits, no preaching of salvation in Christ. And that means that we should pray for those places and ask God to open a door of faith. 
So let's give thanks to the God who opened a door of faith to this generation. I'm free to preach. You're free to hear. We're free to worship. And a wide and I hope effectual door has been opened in our day. And it's for us to give thanks. To be diligent in taking advantage of this opportunity. Jesus says in Revelation 3, for example. He says, behold. Whenever he says behold, listen. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So he knocks at the door of our hearts that he may enter in and fellowship. By nature, the sinful heart is a strong fortress. It's locked up. It's barred. Nothing but the Spirit can unlock it. But note, Christ patiently knocks outwardly by the Word, inwardly by the Spirit. His desire is for us to open by consent and to commune with one another, which is what he did for Lydia. By the Spirit, through the Word, he knocked, she opened, and a soul was saved. And how wonderful and lofty is the privilege of accepting the terms of salvation. Very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Those are the terms. That's the terms of salvation. They're openly offered. And there are people in this world among whom Jesus is still unknown. They've never heard that. But not you, not me. In his mercy, God has opened a door of faith for us to enter. The gospel is proclaimed. Christ offers salvation free of charge. And in him, we may receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Wouldn't it be striking for you and me to see a starving man refuse the offer of a free meal? Wouldn't it be astonishing to see a condemned man walking up the scaffold Refuse an offer of pardon. You know something? God loses nothing if you're damned. And God gains nothing if you're saved. (laughs) And yet he's pleased to freely offer to you and me salvation through his son. And the gospel requires nothing except faith, which is his gift. You don't have to make any kind of satisfaction to his justice. All those demands have been met. All you need to do is turn from your sin and trust in Christ. And understand that no sooner does the spirit renew the soul, but the soul responds in faith. In some measure, that soul exercises faith and receives Jesus. Even if it's faith the size of a mustard seed, a believer enters the kingdom and becomes a child of God, a high and glorious privilege. There is none greater, but he can do so. The believer will inherit eternal life only when God opens that door of faith and he walks through it. Faith in Christ involves the deep mysteries and the things of greatest weight. John Flavel, and I'm going to close here in a minute, But John Flavel points out four different things that distinguishes this saving faith. One, we must know who Jesus is and what he's done. You got to know him. 
If we're ignorant of this, then we'll have no reason to take Christ or to trust in him. You've got to know him. Two, you have to assent to the truth of Christ revealed in the gospel because the soul will not adhere to what the mind does not assent to. So that's who he is. I assent to it. Three, you have to receive and highly esteem Christ as the only Savior. This means receiving him with a heart that rests upon him and trusts him. You know him. You esteem him and assent to the truths about him. You receive him. And fourth, you choose him as your Lord and Savior. It's a choice of the will. You stretch forth your soul and you receive him as your king. That's saving faith. And this was the great criticism that Jesus himself leveled at the Jews. He said to them, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The door of faith was open. The word was preached. The spirit was at work. And even though their conscience was awakened and their souls were convicted, they refused. And like the Jews of yesterday, people today oftentimes refuse to choose Christ. Let's carefully consider the glory of Christ and the greatness of his benefits. He is not offered to fallen angels. He is not offered to the damned in hell. He is not offered to millions now living who never heard the gospel. He's offered to you. To you who are no better than any of those whom the gospel has passed by. And the question is whether or not you and I will trust in him and walk through the door of faith. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, your goodness, and your abundant grace in opening a door of faith to Gentiles in general and to us in particular. We pray that everybody here and all within the hearing of my voice would walk through that open door, trusting in Jesus Christ to the salvation of their souls. And Father, we ask this confidently because we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.